Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 22 of the Convo podcast. Uh, it is entitled Between Mountains and a Hard Place, Pakistan Examining Pakistan's Policy on Afghanistan. The news headlines that uh, rolled out of Afghanistan over the last few weeks and that indeed continues to roll out of Afghanistan in anticipation of what the new government will look like has piqued the curiosity of analysts, of Muslims and non-Muslims, uh, analyst and uh, layperson alike. Uh, we look on with great uh, interest, with great anticipation as to what will happen, what will uh, transpire in Afghanistan after the resurgence and the rise of the Taliban. Uh, on this episode, uh, having looked at uh, the issues to do with Afghanistan and Taliban in our last episode, we turn our attention to the wider region. And of course, where better to look uh, than to the east of, Pakistan, of uh, Afghanistan, to a regional power known better as Pakistan. Um, Pakistan, of course, is an important player in the region. Uh, it is one that has uh, had a significant influence over the years on the outcomes in Afghanistan. And so, of course, um, many have looked uh, at Pakistan and have tried to analyze the events, the statements, the political uh, positions or posturing, whatever you'd like to consider it. Um, again, also with very keen interest. Inshallah, uh, on this episode, we have some uh, very esteemed and very honorable guests who have uh, agreed to join us, we, whom we will uh, introduce very shortly. But first, um, a quick uh, segment to explain what this episode is about. Look at Afghanistan. It's almost now 19 years. Still finding a solution. Still trying to get peace talks going, ceasefire going. Still people are dying in Afghanistan. Does the US want another conflict? happening in Afghanistan is over two decades of conflict, deep divisions, and unfortunately, the United States seeking a military solution when there was not one. When there were 150,000 troops, NATO troops in Afghanistan, the greatest military machine that was the time to ask the Taliban to come on the table. Why were the Taliban going to compromise when the exit date was given? And there were only a few thousand American troops left. Why would they listen to us when they are sensing victory? And the argument up until now has been, we've got a war where we public, uh, we can't really put troops on the ground, we can't really get involved. Well, this is where peace will be made. War will be made. Mm. Yeah. At the moment, uh, the way things are in Afghanistan, not everyone is optimistic. Mm. 
Assalamu alaikum and welcome back on the other side of that video. So, uh, as Sufyan mentioned, uh, we do have two esteemed guests with us today who, inshallah, will make the conversation uh, very interesting, very enlightening. Um, and so I'll introduce who they are. We have Brother Hashmat Muslih. He is a political analyst and a commentator on all things Afghanistan. He's got an MA in International Urban and Environmental Management, and he served as an advisor to the former president of Afghanistan, Barhanuddin Rabbani. Assalamu alaikum and jazakallah khair, Brother Muslih, for coming on. Wa alaikum assalam. And uh, we've got Brother Adnan Khan, who is a political analyst, author, activist, and founder of the website geopolity.com, shameless plug, written on economics, political Islam, energy, defense, and the Middle East for over 20 long years, not to suggest that uh, you're advanced in years or anything at all, um, author of Global Trends for the 21st Century and 100 Years of the Middle East, Brother Adnan Khan, Jazakallah Khair, for coming on today. Uh, you seem to be muted or audio is not connected. Can you hear me now? Yep. Yeah, much better. Jazakallah okay. Khair. Okay, yes, it's good to be here. Uh, so thank you very much, brothers, for, uh, for agreeing to come on today. Now, we did, um, it, with our last podcast, we covered the issue of Afghanistan as well, but we did in a quite a broad sense because the news was quite fresh. It was, it was moving very quickly. And so we thought it's a good idea to sort of get on top of it, get on top of it, have some discussion about it. Um, but as Sufyan said, we wanted to narrow the focus a bit now to sort of some of the regional implications, but also another player in this arena who is uh, Pakistan. But we have to consider whether Pakistan is acting as Pakistan or a conduit for someone else or any of these other uh, possible machinations. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of it, though, uh, I guess we can ask generally, what are your thoughts on sort of the the movement of the Taliban, the sudden emergence um, and sort of how things are at the moment? And then we can proceed the discussion from there. Uh, Brother Hashmat, perhaps you can start us off. So, uh, salam alaikum to you and all the listeners. Uh, I really like the uh, topic of this uh, discussion, which is Afghanistan, which, which is between the mountains and a hard place. Uh, uh, it's very ambiguous in a sense, and I like the ambiguity of it, that is it Afghanistan that is between the mountain and a hard place, or is it Pakistan that is between the mountains and a hard place? And I think it goes both ways. And um, the relationship of the two countries historically, uh, since the creation of Pakistan uh, and uh, 1948, uh, till now has always been shaped in the two nations' image of themselves. And I think to date, uh, that policy and that relationship has not uh, found its uh, a coherent place in both countries' foreign policies. Uh, Pakistan would like to see Afghanistan as a junior brother uh, oh. for various reasons. And Afghanistan would like, looks at, uh, at Pakistan as a junior brother for its historical, social, and political uh, reasons. And that relationship has been at loggerhead in, at, at times, and uh, the two nations uh, have never had an active war as such, but there has always been uh, conflict between the two uh, countries at various levels. And I think that has come now to basically um, to fruition, and we can see that how Pakistan appears to have had the upper hand in how it's going to uh, shape a government in Afghanistan uh, that will uh, so that will be 
an alliance to Pakistan? Is it going to be an alliance of equals or an alliance of a led and the leader and the led? Uh, with that, uh, I'll, I'll start uh, this conversation and pass it on to you and see what other colleagues have uh, views on this. Jazakallah Thank you very much. Um, Brother Adnan, what would, uh, what would you like to start us off with on this topic? Okay. So I come to you all and uh, all your listeners. So I think at a broad level, America's credibility is really taking a hit. Uh, this 20-year uh, adventure, um, for many Americans, they're looking at this and thinking, what have we actually achieved over a 20-year period? I think since the 15th of August, when uh, Kabul uh, fell, uh, really, America's credibility has taken a, a big hit. We can discuss probably, was this a smart thing to do? Was it not the smart thing to do? But US credibility has really uh, taken a hit. And this seems to be the perspective that's coming out of Pakistan at the moment. So Imran Khan has said, you know, the whole adventure in Afghanistan was a, a disaster for America. We, we told you so. It would always yeah. uh, uh, turn out like this. Pakistan, if I remember, it used two key arguments over the last 20 years. One was from Musharraf that really we've got no choice. We have to side with America. Otherwise, it's going to have a massive impact on us. And then later on, they developed and pushed out this uh, double game uh, strategy that we're playing a double game. Uh, really, there is a long-term plan here. We we are back in the Taliban, although we're fighting with and alongside America. And from Pakistan or from the military establishment, they feel they've been vindicated. They feel that that strategy has now uh, delivered. Uh, America is leaving the country with uh, its tail between his legs and the Taliban are now back in power. The, the third argument that they uh, put out or the perspective that they've always put out was that they've always viewed Afghanistan from this strategic depth perspective that we don't want to be encircled by, by India. And obviously the 2001 invasion led to the overthrow of the Taliban. Uh, a northern alliance-related regime was put in power. And you saw over the last 20 years, India open up consulates, India getting involved in Afghanistan. So as far as the Pakistan military is concerned and its establishment, all of that now has been reversed. I mean, Pakistan's back in the game uh, as far as uh, they're concerned. So all the narratives they created as far as they're concerned have actually uh, transpired uh, uh, now. Interestingly, since 15th of August, there's been not much from the military establishment, even though they've been heavily involved, uh, even though they've been heavily involved in the talks that were going on. What you've seen really is the civilian politicians try to take credit for what's actually happened. So you've seen Imran Khan, who, to be honest with you, for a long time has taken the perspective that America's involvement is a bad thing. It's only causing instability in the region, including Pakistan. You've seen other civilian politicians take credit that uh, Pakistan is really uh, back in the game again. And the developments of the last 20 years were against Pakistan's interests. So that's the general perspective, really, that's uh, coming out from there. And, yeah, it'll be good to uh, uh, lead on from there, inshallah. Um some very interesting thoughts there um, about uh, Pakistan, about Imran Khan, and, and there's a million directions we can take that in. You know, just off the top of my head, I'd love to investigate and get your thoughts on how much of a say Imran Khan has in the direction that uh, Pakistan will take, um, which gets to the heart of, you know, IR theory in, in some respects, you know, the politician to lead uh, as the poster boy of Pakistan, or is he actually representing what the top brass of military leadership believes? Um, there's so much there to talk about, but I think um, I want to start off by talking about 
How significant do you think Pakistan is as a regional player? We've got in Afghanistan, if you look at the borders, it's uh, as, as famously, you know, probably every publication of, of Afghanistan will start off by saying it's a landlocked country. Um, it's got Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, um, Iran, uh, but, you know, uh, perhaps um, one of the most important, it is claimed, partners uh, and, and neighbours and uh, 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 countries which border uh, Afghanistan is Pakistan. So I just want to get your thoughts on the significance of Pakistan in the events of of late in Afghanistan and how significant a player it is. Hashmat, if you can just comment on that to start off. Well, yes. Uh, so I don't agree that Pakistan is back in the game. The, uh, I, I would reframe it differently. I would say Pakistan was never out of the game. Pakistan has been in the game from the get-go. Uh, they did play a very successful uh, double game in Afghanistan. And uh, I'm sure that a lot of the regional intelligence organizations are very envious of ISI and its, the role it played in Afghanistan. Uh, uh, let's look at uh, uh, Salam Daif, the Taliban ambassador in uh, Pakistan, when he said, and I've met him and I've spoken to him a couple of times, he said that while he was the recognized ambassador of Taliban in Pakistan, one day the authorities came to him and said, your excellency, you're no longer excellency. And he was arrested and handed over to the Americans. Uh, I personally worked for Al Jazeera and went inside Afghanistan in 2001, two, three, four and then later on in 6 and 2011. And um, uh, I was the, the journalist who basically uh, managed to get uh, the early footage of uh, Taliban uh, coming back to fight the Americans. And the Taliban, I've always said, were displaced. They were never defeated. Hmm. They simply vanished back into their villages and their leadership went into Pakistan, into safe houses. Um, so uh, during uh, that time when I spoke to uh, Taliban, there were a number of Taliban commanders who were very angry at Pakistan's double game because they were saying that a lot of the leadership has been arrested and has been put under house arrest. Mm. So Pakistan did play, especially Pakistan's uh, intelligence uh, services, uh, played that double game. Uh, today, they're just getting, uh, ripping the rewards of that game. Uh, but there's a wider question here. Did America really, uh, or is America really defeated? Yes, America is defeated militarily. They could not, um, uh, well, let, let me rephrase that. America came to Afghanistan to arrest, kill Osama bin Laden. The moment they couldn't do that, they had to find a theory to stay in Afghanistan. And that theory became nation building. But mm. to nation building, to sell it to the Western taxpayers, they had to sort of ideologize that. Could another the ideology liberating become... mission and saving the Afghan women, all that kind of thing. Absolutely. So the card of women was played, that we want to liberate women, emancipate women. And they can see now the coverage has gone back, most of the media back to them focusing on women and what's happening yeah. to women and individuals. So was that of a policy? The, the, the Americans tried to go... Uh, construct a theory of why they have to stay in Afghanistan. But the moment they killed Osama bin Laden, America did not have a reason why they have to stay in Afghanistan. If you look at the wider picture of the region, of, of the Muslim world, the West has never transferred technology to the Muslim world. Never. 
And that's been one of the major issues. You have Southeast Asian countries that they've got uh, technology transfer. That's because there is a war at an ideological level. All Muslim countries are told you have to give up your Islam, you have to liberalize in yeah. order for you to have development. Uh, but uh, when, it when it comes to non-Muslim countries, technology has been transferred. So the Americans, uh, militarily after they killed Osama bin Laden, they, their mission was accomplished. The rest of it was in a strategy of how to get out. And I absolutely believe that uh, Osama bin Laden was handed over to the Americans in exchange for Afghanistan by ISI of Pakistan. I remember many times uh, Asadullah Durrani, uh, the former head of Pakistan's intelligence, uh, came to Doha and spoke in Brooklyn Institute, and he was uh, running this one line. It's not befitting for an empire or an emperor to walk in the streets of the empire and try to keep security. You have regional allies. Uh, give that to your regional allies. They know the streets and the alleyways better than you do. And that's what the Pakistani uh, intelligence services wanted from the Americans. And the Americans are happy to hand over that to the Pakistanis uh, for, for various reasons that we may get time to discuss why the Americans would want Pakistan to handle the case of Afghanistan. So I, I believe that um, the, um, the, the, the real game or the real war on Taliban is going to start from now. It's going to be a diplomatic war, an economic war, and it's going to be a public relation war with the might of the Western media against the Taliban. Ashman, can, to... I, can, I, can I ask you, um, there's, the, uh, there's the public record for why America goes to Afghanistan and it talks about capturing Osama bin Laden and it talks about uh, nation building and everything else that keeps evolving over the period of 20 years. Then there's, you know, very, very well-documented reasons that go well beyond that, which talks about... Um, you know, the ability to reach warmer waters and connect pipelines from Central Asia through Afghanistan and reap the benefit of that. You know, I can't remember the names of these um, um, companies which, which established, but all the way back um, in the 80s and 90s, there's communication between Taliban leaders and these companies uh, during the Reagan administration. Um, I, I just want to get your thoughts on when we say that America did achieve certain objectives, you know, you say militarily they may not have won, but they've achieved certain other objectives. Um, where do you see these objectives and how successfully America has met these particular uh, objectives? That's a, that's a very good point you raised. And that comes the narrative from inside Afghanistan. The narrative in Afghanistan is that in modern day, if you look at the Arab Spring, there was a, a, a war against the Islamic Brotherhood or the Muslim Brotherhood, making yeah. sure that they never come to power. And wherever they came to power, they were crushed. Yeah. But that war is actually started in Afghanistan when the Mujahideen captured Kabul from Najibullah, the, the communist president. And those who came to power was Burhanuddin Rabbani, Ahmad Shah Massoud, uh, uh, Ustad Sayyaf. All these people have ideological roots in Muslim Brotherhood that that uh, many countries in the region did not want that. Yeah. And uh, I know this, uh, I've heard this personally from Ahmad Shah Massoud that they used to send weapons to Sudan in exchange for uh, sugar and other supplies oh. from Sudan. And at one point, uh, ISI, uh, sorry, CIA had mentioned to Ahmad Shah Massoud that you guys had barely taken control of Afghanistan and you were exporting weapons to uh, Muslim Brotherhood countries like that of uh, Sudan, which was under uh, uh, Bashir. So 
An alternative to the Muslim Brotherhood in Afghanistan was a, uh, a tribal, traditional movement, like, one like that of Taliban, to secure Afghanistan, pacify it, uh, uh, disarm the country, and also have an inward-looking Islamic view. They found that in the ideology of the schools of Deoband, especially that of, the, of uh, Afghanistan. So the Americans, the British, the Saudis, and the Emiratis, and the Pakistan government at that time saw Taliban as the right horse to back, or even to create and mobilize, to get rid of that ideological government had it uh, came to power fully and established itself, which they thought was dangerous. At that time, Iran did not want a Sunni uh, Muslim Brotherhood government on its border as well. Yep. So, uh, yes, uh, we do know that the Taliban uh, had very close links with the uh, Americans in their first coming in the 1994. Hamid Karzai was actually one of the uh, very key figures in making sure that the Taliban are recognized by the Americans. He was actually uh, uh, lobbying in, with the petroleum companies that they make deals with, uh, with the Taliban. At that time, the geopolitics was that uh, the situation was changing, Soviet Union was collapsing, there was a lot of uncertainty, there was a thirst for energy, and there was a lot of oil and gas pipelines that had to go through this region from Turkmenistan into Afghanistan into warm waters, as you mentioned before, or could have gone through former Soviet states of Georgia and uh, Azerbaijan, and then going through Turkey. Because really, if you look at all the gas oil pipelines that are going to Europe, either, it's either through Turkey or Ukraine, and Europe wants to somehow an alternative yep. uh, 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 avenue to these energies. And uh, the Persian Gulf, which is heavily militarized by the Americans, was the safest way. And with Pakistan being a former ally of America during the Cold War, a very, very key ally of America. So they managed to convince the Americans that this was the right path to go. So I would say in terms of energy and all the bigger geopolitics, America hasn't lost anything. Uh, what derailed the project was that when the Taliban captured Afghanistan, they inherited some of Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda bases. So that factor within the Taliban was a double-edged sword. From one hand, it legitimized the Taliban in the sense that they've got all these Arabs who speak Arabic and they are very religious and they are calling for jihad and they would go to villages and invite people to join the Taliban ranks and bring or, or, uh, supplies and weapons. And it was a great cover also for the Pakistan side to say, look, it's not me, it is these Arabs who are pushing the agenda, not us. And the mistake that the Northern Alliance, that we call Northern Alliance, made that they... they um, publicized the angle of Al-Qaeda bigger than that of the angle of Pakistan's interference in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. well, at times, it was almost equal rivaling, and it created confusion in the mind of the world. Is it really Pakistan supporting uh, Taliban, or is it Al-Qaeda supporting Taliban? And that was really good for the Pakistani ISI to say, look, it's not us, it is Al-Qaeda. Mm -hmm. The Al-Qaeda factor derailed everything for the Americans. Mm -hmm. But now with Al-Qaeda out, the Taliban cleansed in some way, and now Pakistan as a guarantor is going to keep the cap and make sure that the Taliban do not go down that path of allying, uh, making alliances with some of these uh, organizations that have a global uh, agenda, political and military agenda, to establish the state of Khilafah. Uh, the Taliban are back in, in the game, the Americans are back in the game, but how the Americans are going to stuff, uh, write this off 
and within the years to come, they're going to stuff, uh, develop new relationships with the Taliban and use their economic, diplomatic uh, ties and pressures through Pakistan and directly on uh, Taliban to bring about reforms. Uh, look how they've got a stronghold on Iran, on Chauvis. Uh, and Pakistan would like that pressure because as the Taliban government remains isolated internationally, it's good for Pakistan because Pakistan becomes the only avenue yep. for, for Taliban to engage with the rest of the world. And that's where the influence will come in, both economically, politically. Jazakallah khair. Adnan Khan, I'd like to bring you in at this point. Um, uh, Hashmat is, uh, spoke about figures from, from the 80s and 90s who are in some way or form, they're still there not uh, necessarily themselves. In some cases, there were assassinations. In some cases, some of them were passed on. Um, he mentioned Burhanuddin Rabbani, Ahmad Shah Massoud. Um, the latter of them, Ahmad Shah Massoud, was, you know, from what we've heard and what we've read over the years, he was one of the three gentlemen. Well, at the time, it was probably a 16, 17-year-old uh, young, young boy who at the time when he was, he was known as the Lion of Panjshir uh, when he went across to Pakistan to be trained by the ISI. Um, I, I, I want to ask you a little bit about the difference that you see in Pakistan's influence on, on, on those sorts of military outcomes and political outcomes today uh, compared to what we had full-blown training of people that were then going to be sent back to determine the outcome. How do you compare the two eras? Mm -hmm. So obviously the, the biggest factor back in the 80s was the Soviet invasion. And what you find is the anti-Soviet forces were on the same page. The Soviet Union had to be stopped, had to be defeated. So with American financing and American leadership, with Saudi financing and Saudi organization of Mujahideen from across the world, and with Pakistani training, financing, organization across the border, Really, Pakistan had quite, in fact, the, 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 the rumor was is General Zia, he got an agreement from the Americans that on the ground, Pakistan wants a free hand. It, it doesn't want any interference. It was going to organize the Mujahideen. It, it was going to train them across the border uh, and send them in. And to a large degree, that did actually take place. In fact, America really only got involved on the ground later on uh, in the war. And it was quite clear the tide uh, had turned. So um, what will turn into the Taliban? You had the Hizbi Islami, all the different groups that even emerged within Pakistan later. You know, Pakistan knows who, which, who these individual groups are. It trained them. Uh, it financed them. That was then. Now, obviously, the situation's uh, a bit different. Some of these Mujahideen have turned against Pakistan. Uh, some of them joined the TTP, Tariqi Taliban, Pakistan, inside the country. And it's interesting, uh, Hashmat mentioned uh, Mullah Abdurrahim Zaif. Uh, so I've actually just starting his book because it's been translated and it's quite an interesting insight. But he actually said something very interesting that he himself said he never trusted Pakistan. He knew Pakistan were financing the Taliban, but he himself never trusted them. Right. And I think he probably uh, referring for to our, for the benefit of our audience. Could you just give us a little bit more about this personality? Just give us a little lowdown on who he is. So uh, Abdurrahim Zaif was the Taliban uh, ambassador to Pakistan. So he a lot of the times the public statements they were putting out, the press conferences were by him uh, inside Pakistan. So he, his book was in Pashto, I think it's only recent, well, it's been translated uh, just recently. Uh, and in there, he talks about the beginning of the Taliban. He talks about himself when he was the, the, the ambassador. And it is quite interesting because he saw 
Pakistan, the ISI, how they were working internally within Pakistan. So it's actually a very interesting insight. And he himself, he said this for a little while, the Taliban, well, he himself didn't really trust Pakistan fully because he could see their relationship with America. So he obviously saw this during the uh, uh, invasion by the Soviet Union and afterwards when he was an ambassador. But what he says is, look, the Taliban had no choice. They needed a foreign patron. Uh, they actually had no choice. And then he talks a lot about the Kuwait Shura. Uh, he talks about the meetings that took place in Pakistan in the presence of the, the ISI. So it's interesting. He, you know, he had this view, you know, how much can we really trust Pakistan? And in some ways he felt vindicated when, you know, General Musharraf sided with America, uh, against the Taliban. Mm. So obviously the situation we've got now is, uh, some of these figures have obviously gone. Uh, and what you actually have now is you've got this Taliban organization and Pakistan doesn't have influence across the whole board. And this is why interesting is there's been some interesting statements about Mullah Omar's son, uh, Mullah Muhammad uh, Yaqub. It would seem Pakistan's not ha- happy. They probably don't have the relationship that uh, they would like. You've obviously got the uh, Siraj al-Haqqani. That's really the link Pakistan had inside the uh, uh, Taliban. Uh, and they sit on the leadership uh, committee. This was one segment of the Mujahideen. Uh, Pakistan back to, uh, 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 back in the day. So definitely Pakistan has influence. Does it have the amount of influence it would like? Absolutely not. Uh, and that's why it's interesting. A number of these personalities now who are taking a lead uh, for the Taliban, they were in prison just a few years ago with inside Pakistan. Um, the Mullah, uh, uh, brother, he was in prison. In fact, he was, uh, uh released to go on lead yeah. these, uh, talks, uh, uh, in Doha. So this, you know, some of this comes back to Pakistan's double game. That, that's what they call it. I think if you sit back and you look at it, what this double game really is, is we're going to back both sides and see which way the coin falls, right? And I think Abdul Rahim Zaif, he saw this, that really Pakistan's in it for themselves. They, they're that's not necessarily political expediency 101. Yeah. So obviously the way the Pakistani military has put this is, oh, don't worry if loads of our Mujahideen that we backed are passing away. Don't worry, things are really bad. In the long run, this investment will pay off, right? And obviously, not, you know, that's not going to sit uh, well with uh, anyone. That's not to say this is a position of everyone within the military establishment. They are the Pakistani public support the Taliban. They believe they're in a legitimate struggle against a foreign occupation. In fact, even within the army, this has been a view. And that's why many of them were court-martialed. And when many of these individuals were told to carry out operation in Pakistan's northern areas, to make sure these people don't support the resistance, there were a lot of court martials. So what this shows you is that there's a lot of opposition against this double game policy as well. Um, but what's being pushed in Pakistan now is the double game has paid off. Taliban mm. are back in power. Uh, and we told you so. That's how they're actually... Uh, well, I guess it was always a 50-50 chance you could... It went one way or the other. Either if it didn't go in your favour, we're still playing the game. If it does go in your favour, see, we told you so. Yeah. So what's interesting here is, is, if you look, Pakistan's been doing the heavy lifting in Afghanistan during the Cold War now. It's been doing the heavy lifting for a long time. So there's a question there, you know, what's the end game? What's your long-term goal? Because it seems whenever America needs Pakistan to do something, it gets done. You had the Cold War, you had the Soviet invasion, but a lot of the heavy lifting is being done by Pakistan. So how much of this are you doing for yourself? How much is, are you doing this for your brothers in arms, uh, as you keep saying? Or how much of this is actually in U.S. Uh, interests? Yeah, yeah. And that's probably a discussion we should have as well, actually. Absolutely. I think that's very interesting. I think, uh, did you want to add anything to that, uh, Hashmat? 
Yes, I, I like to unpack this idea of double gain. Uh, majority of the people that would listen to such uh, uh, comments, especially if they are Muslim and very religious, they will be appalled that how could a state, a Muslim state, play a double game? Pakistan played a double game. Their nations were playing multiple games, triple games. That's what the role of intelligence is. The world of politics is not a world of you are my brother, I am your brother, and that's it. It's not that. Uh, there are major, major issues at stake. Let's just look at this. Why would Pakistan want to have an influence on Afghanistan at a wider level? Pakistan has been bitten in half. You've got Bangladesh separated from Pakistan. So they have got this psychological scar on this nation. The nation was built on the idea that it's going to be a pure Pak nation of Islam. And then it still has the issue of uh, Jammu and Kashmir with India, has a huge neighbor called India with enormous alliances globally and enormous economy and rising as a military power and a nuclear power. Then you've got on the other side, you've got Israel, which is a nuclear power threatening the Arab world. The Muslim countries, none of them have an army that can sustain itself. Pakistan has managed or had no choice but to go down the path of nuclear armament and has armed itself with a nuclear weapon. It's one of those states that is narrow, hasn't got strategic depth. It is long ways. It is in a very difficult situation uh, in a sense that its boundaries are challenged. Its legitimacy and historical legitimacy is challenged. Remember, Afghanistan government did not support the creation of Pakistan, unfortunately, in those early days. And when I say unfortunately, I'm talking politically unfortunately. And religiously, it's another issue. Should the Muslims of India be partitioned? That's another issue. With all these problems, uh, Pakistan has a burgeoning population of and, and a small landmass and a large population of Pashtuns that Pakistan would like to have them exported into Afghanistan. I would not be surprised if suddenly a war break out in Pakistan tribal areas and five, six million Pashtuns become refugees inside Afghanistan. And that will be an, an, an ex, uh, exiting a population into Afghanistan and reducing Pakistan's population uh, mass. So with all this in mind, Pakistan does not want to have uh, Indian influence in Afghanistan. To win over Afghanistan, Pakistan chose the Pashtun population of Afghanistan. Now, everybody thinks the Pashtuns of Afghanistan are a majority. There has never been a census in the history of Afghanistan that which ethnic group or which tribe is bigger than the other tribe. In Afghanistan, the view of the Tajiks, which is one of the predominant or main ethnic, major ethnic groups, is that at best we are neck to neck, like 39, 38, 38, or 40, 40. Yeah. But the Pashtuns are keep on saying we are 70% of the country. And with that, whether that's true or not, we leave that, because all we can say that the Pashtuns in Afghanistan are a major minority. In 1992, I'm just going to enter into a new, another dynamic, internal dynamic of Afghanistan, why Afghanistan became dependent to Pakistan. Apart from geography and military and all that, as uh, uh, Adnan mentioned, that the, uh, uh, Pakistan is desired to back various groups, but the Pashtuns of Afghanistan, they need a foreign ally. They need someone from outside of their borders to support them. Because remember, Afghanistan, at the height of its development, had only 5% of its population educated. 
The Franco lingo of Afghanistan has always been uh, uh, Farsi, which is a language of the Tajiks, not only the language of Iran. It originated in this region of, of, of modern day Afghanistan. So, and imagine, and, and just to take it back, 19th century is the age of nation states and the fever of nationalism. So, nation states are created in the image of a single tribe. Like in the UK, it's a British. Uh, and then Welsh and Irish had to uh, accept. In, in France, it was the Francos that had to sort of. Uh, uh, everybody has to speak French. And you can see still the skirmishes in Europe between different linguistic minorities and groups because of that idea of nation state and the idea of a melting pot that emerged in America. So in Afghanistan, the Pashtun nationalists wanted an Afghanistan that is in the image of, of Pashtun, is a Pashtun polar nation. But then they had a problem of language. The, the main language is Persian. And then in 1992, the people who came to power is Burhanuddin Rabbani, Ahmad Shamasud, predominantly, are, these are the leaders of the Tajiks. So the Pashtuns felt that they've lost Afghanistan. They had to make a deal, even if it had to be with the devil. But then they found, not the devil, they found Pakistan, and, uh, which is an ally in the region that uh, has a strong Islamic parties and a strong interest in Afghanistan. So I believe that the Pashtun leadership was very pragmatic and very focused in what they want. They don't care who's going to help them as long as they can get that first seat back in their hand. Mm. I was in the North during 1990 when Hanouni, the chief negotiator of Northern Alliance, this was before Ahmad Shamasud was assassinated. He told me, we have come to conclusion that the war in Afghanistan will end if we allow the first person to be the Pashtun, a Pashtun. In other words, let's bring back a Pashtun leader at the top as a president or king or Amir al-Mu'mineen, no matter what form that comes. And then we can move and, and, and just stop this bloody war that cost hundreds of thousands of people's lives were, were lost during this war and the entire wealth of the nation has been destroyed. Mm -hmm. So with that image, with that explanation, uh, Pakistan has uh, very important geopolitical reasons to play multiple games to maintain that. Uh, and when I mentioned Israel, now Pakistan is a nuclear umbrella safeguarding the eastern flank of the Muslim world from any future war from, from uh, India. I'm not saying India is going to war with the region, but in the, when, when you discuss geopolitics, these are the issues you have to discuss. Mm, interesting. And with that power comes also economic clout that Pakistan can have. I mean, right now, sorry, just very quickly. Right oh. now, if Americans don't like something, they fix it by force. They yeah. can fix it by force conventionally because they've got a nuclear weapon. If you break those lines, then the bigger guns will come out. So everything ties back. International politics is survival of the fittest. It's not brotherhood. Absolutely. I, 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 we, I, you know, we, from a realist point of view, the state will always look after its own interests. And I've heard, you know, we'll listen to other podcasts. I was just telling Brother Adnan before we started the podcast, I was listening to an Urdu language podcast um, who obviously are very interested. You know, this is frontline conversation in Pakistan at the moment in many circles. And they made the same point that, you know, a state will always um, look after its own interests. Obviously, I hope the, when we make that point, we're differentiating between the reality and obviously the the expectation of the Islamic requirement, they're two separate games here. We say when you talk about the reality of the Pakistani state, 100%, it's going to be a purely real estate in that, nation, in that notion of looking after its own interests, 
looking after its geopolitical interests. And, you know, playing the double game in that respect should not come as a surprise to any of us. Yeah. Um, can, I, can I say something here? This is exactly where ISIS comes in. Yeah. ISIS will go to those other groups and tell them, because of modern nation state and because of all this where double games are played and where Muslim, Muslim nations are fighting Muslim nations, that we have to break down boundaries and there has to be one brotherhood. Absolutely. And that's why they are, uh, this, is the, this is their argument. Absolutely. That it's Absolutely. inherent in the nature of modern nation state to be selfish against mm-hmm. another state and mm-hmm. hence civil wars and hence proxy wars. Definitely. I, I want to ask uh, Adnan if you can comment on this and, and Hashmat, your thoughts as well. We spoke about the various layers within Pakistan. Like you mentioned this phrase, top brass, the top brass of Pakistan's military. Um, then you talk about these, uh, uh, the, 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 the segments within the Pakistani military which were court-martialed. Uh, then you talk about the, of the, the, the public within Pakistan supporting yeah. the Taliban. There's so many different layers here. I really want you to just break it apart for us a little bit, you know, because the last thing anyone should walk away with is this thought that Pakistan is one monolithic entity and everyone's on the same page, right? Um, can you give us some of those layers? I've mentioned three. Are there others? And can you give us a little bit about each of those? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think the important thing here is, is whenever we look at any nation, usually there's a clear hierarchy You've got the people, you've got some political parties, you've got some industrialists, you've got the military if there are involved, uh, and then you have the regime and the institutions that have quite a, a dominance over people's lives. Pakistan's not like that, and it's due to one reason. Uh, when Pakistan was created, much of the resources ended up in India, Maine. So from that point onwards, really, Pakistan started off with a weak hand. So even the one-year Muhammad Ali Jinnah was in power what you find they had many people who migrated they have a lack of resources in fact the early politicians from the All India Muslim League actually turned out to be pretty incompetent and that was the only institution that was organised was the military because a lot of these were trained under the British they were very very organised so the military I think did a coup in 1956-58 because that's how bad things were so really what Pakistan evolved into is a strong society built around kinship and family, but a weak state. In fact, for most Pakistanis, the state has absolutely no influence on a day-to-day level in their lives. In fact, nobody even takes it serious. So when you have a problem, when you have an issue, you go to the tribal leader, you go to an influential, you do not go to the state, you do not go to uh, court. So that's why Pakistan has evolved very differently compared to uh, you know, a normal country uh, or country that actually uh, functions. So the army is the guarantor of Pakistan. In the army, you have the top brass. Obviously, not every position is the same. And just to give you some numbers, you have, I think, four or five four-star generals at the highest level. Underneath them, you have about 20-ish lieutenant generals. Then you have about 300 major generals, and then you have a few hundred brigadiers. This is the top part of the army. Pakistan has an army, well, a standing force of over half a million. We're not even including the reserve force. So that's quite a unique position uh, to actually uh, be in. The military of Pakistan live technically in separate areas, very different to the rest of the country. So they're in a very, very unique position. So that's why the army top brass, the ISI, these are the real rulers of Pakistan, whether they're in physical power or whether you have a civilian government. Beyond that, then, you have your feudal landlord, you've got your families, you've got your opportunists, 
And then you've got some political parties that come to represent the interest of certain factions. So you've got the Awami League that represents the interests of a certain faction, things like that. And because the civilian government has done such a bad job, you've got all these different parties, opportunities that have evolved uh, over time. Obviously, the view in Pakistan is Pakistan was created for one purpose, which was for Islam. We lived with majority Hindu population. And as far as most people were concerned, the sacrifices they made was for Islam. And they expect Islam to be some form of Islamic state. That does project some sort of Islamic power uh, around the world. That's why over the years, the establishment, the military top brass, have had to come up with arguments. We're weak. America's too strong. We've got no choice. Double game. That's actually what they've uh, done. And that's why you find General Musharraf, when he joined America's war in terror, uh, opposition against him grew. That's why this term Bushadaf uh, yeah. came back. Yeah. In fact, the anti-American feeling is very high in Pakistan. The way the top brass are able to justify is because we're economically weak, because America's too strong, we've got no choice. Yeah. And remember, you know, life for your average Pakistani, this is a country where the last time I checked, 80% of the population earns less than $10 a day. That's the life for your average Pakistani. And that's why economic arguments, even now, there's a lot of talk about connectivity, Central Asia, Afghanistan, Pakistan. Again, it's an economic argument. This was an argument General Zia uh, developed back in the day, but he actually believed in it. He believed these are our brothers as well, and his region uh, should be one. So you've got all these different factions, but yeah, you've got a clear hierarchy, which is not what you normally see uh, in other nations. But a lot of that has been due to the failure of the civilian politicians. And unfortunately, civilian politicians all want to get into power uh, in order to uh, uh, take advantage of the state and um, uh, fill their pockets. Mm, Benazir Bhutto and Nawashif constantly have got done for... In fact, I think Benazir Bhutto and Nawashif have never completed the term because they've got done for uh, corruption. Uh, And that's really the hierarchy in short. It's that wonderful revolving door of corruption where they walk in, they walk out, and then they walk right back in. Um, Even Imran Khan's regime, for example, uh, the majority of his cabinet are all those individuals that have been around for the last two decades and they've been part of the different uh, uh, governments. And Pakistan is unique where you can have, you can be in the government for 20 years, but you're part of different political parties throughout that period. It's not like in the the West, for example. Wonderfully convenient. From education, foreign minister to health minister, they just keep rotating. Exactly. So it's not like, like in the US, you know, you're a Democratic Party and you stay there for all your life. The way it works in Pakistan, you, that seat in that area belongs to you. And who's going to be in power now? Who's in a more positive light? I join them. So many of them, so many of them joined uh, Imran Khan's party, but most of these people who joined Imran Khan's party, these are former PPP individuals. These are former Muslim League individuals. And what you see once, uh, well, Imran Khan's uh, popularity is on the downer anyway, you see them jumping ship very soon mm. as well. So what that means is no one is really in government or no, how are you going to make long-term policy when really you don't look beyond the election cycle? Mm. And even when you do get in, you're looking to fill your pockets. And then you just get bogged down and not much comes out of it. So the only institution that seems to continue is the military. The politicians come and go, the military continues. Ashmat? 
Yeah, Brother yeah, you, You're right, and I completely really lo love the analysis and, and the breakdown that Adnan did for, uh, about the way Pakistan politics is, is, is structured. And I think that ISI or the military would have no intention of changing that uh, dichotomy. Yeah. They would love to keep it because, mm. again, there's an internal double game. Yeah. They can tell the Americans, look, I have a huge religious population. If you don't let me do certain things my way, they are coming to power. They've got all these Islamic parties. And then they can turn around to the Muslim population and say, you know what? We are weak. America is going to bomb us to zero. We have to do certain things to the year zero. So we have to do certain things to keep the Americans at bay and further our interests. That type of pragmatism exists in Pakistan, and that's due to... Uh, I mean, Pakistan, though it was created in 1948, it did not come out of nothing. It, it had a highly educated elite that came from the British establishment of India. Yeah. So they have huge uh, experience. In Afghanistan, when they want, to, uh, they want to insult the Pakistanis, they say they are the children of Britain. Yeah. That's how they look at the politicians. They say these are, they've got the brains of the British, so therefore they can play all sorts of politics. And, and, I, and I, I, I apologize, I don't want to insult any of my Pakistani brothers with saying, I'm just simply relaying yeah. what the oh, Afghan, some Afghans, some Afghans, not all of them say. But again, I want to look at this other angle of uh, what will happen to, Pakistan, to Taliban and how they will shape their relationship with Pakistan. Because again, it's a two-way relationship. And I, and I totally agree that within the Taliban, there are groups who are vehemently uh, cynical of Pakistan's of, uh, intentions and policies towards Afghanistan. Remember, the Taliban moved with Pakistan for marriage of convenience. They wanted to basically come back to power, and now they are in power. Two things is going to shape uh, Taliban's uh, relationship with Pakistan. One is an internal factor, which is that how the Taliban are going to create an inclusive government that's going to be representatives of the Tajiks, the Uzbeks, the Hazar, Turkmen, the Baluchis, and all others. That is absolutely paramount for Taliban. Yes, Taliban can have a government for 10 years or 15 years or 20 years, then what? Those populations are not going to sit. Once they recuperate and once they get back on their feet, they're going to start another form of um, opposition. What is going to be military, we have to wait and see. And the other thing is, all other ethnic groups are looking at the Taliban as the, quote, unquote, um, that's the um, stooges of Pakistan. Uh. Taliban have to prove to the people of Afghanistan that they have an independent foreign policy. How far are they going to have that independent foreign policy is going to, again, shape their relationship with Pakistan. Because I mean, Pakistan did not invest all this time and effort with Taliban for them to turn around and say, thank you so much, let me lock yeah. the door, and you go to your house and I go to my house. That's not going to happen. And the fact that um, Faiz Hamid, that, uh, or uh, the Pakistani head of uh, ISI, came to Kabul prior to Taliban announcing their government is highly symbolic. Mm, yes. uh, a, a huge diplomatic message that we are in, in, in control here. Yes, that ISI does not control every single member of the Taliban, but intelligence in uh, influence in an organization does not need to control every individual. It needs to have a threat of elimination and knowing, having a, a map of inside organization, knowing how power plays, and then you can physically remove somebody or it could politically influence them. Hmm. And that's very much intact within the Taliban, the ISI control over uh, Taliban. Um, and look, I, both of you have alluded to 
in various ways the sort of the Islamic sentiments, underpinnings and everything else. And I don't want to sort of um, leave this discussion without exploring some of that as well, because, you know, that's obviously quite critical for us as Muslims um, looking on at uh, what's going on. Um, so I wanted to sort of ask the Adnan, you mentioned that, you know, the and Hashmat as well, the foundation of Pakistan was on this idea of some kind of state formation of Islam, you know, in whichever form. Um, and now, you know, Pakistanis look across the border and they see the Taliban with, you know, the, the Islamic symbolism, with the flags, with everything else, with the declarations, with all this kind of thing, Islamic Emirates, so on and so forth. Um, how do you think that Islamic sentiment is coming through? I guess the question is, do the Pakistanis feel as though this is perhaps something that they can sympathize with? Is this something that they can support and maybe eventually even adopt in some kind of way? Like there's been talk of how the Taliban's moves now will enliven and reinvigorate some of the quote-unquote fundamentalist movements and extremist movements in Pakistan who will now call for some transnational kind of agenda. What can we say about this sort of angle on the issue? Um, either of you would like to comment? Okay, um, so interestingly, the, the only faction in Pakistan that's been a bit negative about this development has been the more liberal lot. Mm. And their view is this is going to embolden the extremists, yep. Uh, yep. the radicals uh, inside uh, Pakistan. Aside from that, you know, the politicians all want to take credit for what's happened. And obviously in Pakistani society, they've always viewed the Taliban as a legitimate resistant movement, you know, as foreign invasions. Uh, many Pakistanis, in fact, most Pakistanis are anti-American and they saw, you know, the resistance in Afghanistan as legitimate and they uh, uh, supported it. The interesting thing is with uh, uh, Pakistan and when they look at Afghanistan is that border, the Duran line, although they view themselves as brothers, that Duran line for a lot of people is there, yes, which is quite yes. interesting. But it was drawn by the British. So General Zia, when he was around, there was talk of, you know, that Duran line is just there in theory. You know, uh, you know we're, 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 we're brothers. The issue obviously you've got is interestingly, even the Taliban, uh, you know, even they have, the Pakistan has always pushed that that Duran line is there, that's the border. From the Afghanistan side, they view that that border should have been well inside Pakistan. In fact, mm. Rajasthan and Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, these should be really part of Pakistan. Yeah. These there's, are some, the, there's some ethnic sort of um, arguments for that as well, isn't there? Yeah. The, the issue you've got is, is uh, the Taliban, you know, they've never presented themselves as, although, you know, they, they espouse Islam, they've never really presented anything that goes beyond Afghanistan. So, for example, there's been nothing from them that forget that uh, border, we're one nation, we're one people even intellectually, even though you don't do anything physically, they've always been where a, a Pashtun movement, we're fighting against resistance, has never been uh, beyond that. But what's interesting is, is, well, the borders of Pakistan on both sides were drawn by the British. <laughs> Adnan, I think yeah. there's a quick fix to that. If we just extend the Durand line to include Pakistan and uh, Bangladesh. And, and then just yeah. keep on going and going and going. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But because remember, that... that, that, that... Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean... The, 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 sorry, Adnan, you, I think you're not finished, if you want to finish. No, go for it, go for it, you go for it. So, so yes, um, uh, the Duran line is, 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 is a very controversial line in, in, in the... Uh, that's why we who, call who it... Who would have known that line. lines on a map could be controversial? Exactly, <laughs> absolutely. Some call it lines, some call it border, and how yeah. you refer to it in itself is, 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 is political and sensitive. 
uh, in the, the, the idea from a Pashtun perspective would have been that since we are not really absolute majority in Afghanistan, we need our brethren on the other side of the border to join us. So if they can't leave, we've got 38 million Pashtuns in Pakistan. And if we join 38 million Pashtuns in Pakistan with their territories, then we are absolute majority in Afghanistan. Now, um, from the Tajik perspective is that the Pakistani establishment, especially the Punjab mindset, would be that, uh, yes, if the Pashtuns would like to go to Afghanistan, they are welcome, but they're not going to take the land because we're already short of land. So if there's a migration, if they're going to move northwards or, 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 or westwards, it's absolutely fine with, with them. Um, the, the Taliban up to now have been silent about the issue of Deirent because uh, for them they have easy access across the border, although as we know uh, thousands of that kilometer uh, of that road, thousands of kilometers of that uh, line or border have now barbed wired and fenced yep. and has become a hard, hard border. Mm, yeah. The, an, an alliance between Afghanistan and Pakistan in the 80s, uh, if you Google and you search for this word Islamistan, this idea was floated uh, that maybe there should be a confederation between Afghanistan and Pakistan called Islamistan. And that goes with the sentiment of Muslims on both sides, thinking that both nations need each other. One needs strategic depth and the other one needs access to the warm waters or access to the outside world. But once you do that in, a, in, 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 a, in an area that you've got two strong states, back then it was the Dawood Khan government, and on the other side you've got the Ziaul Haq government. But these gov while Pakistan government has always been Islamic orientated, Afghanistan governments have always been moving to looking towards the West. They've always been looking towards either Moscow or Washington. And and that goes to our question that who are unhappy in Pakistan? The liberals of Afghanistan and Pakistan are very unhappy because they want to create a nation from an ideological perspective, which is a modernist and they want, uh, government. They want to move towards Western liberalism. That's why democracy, democracy, they couldn't, I mean, the amount of, the, the number of times democracy has been mentioned in Afghanistan, I don't think has ever been mentioned in, in, in the US history. I mean, everybody talks about democracy, democracy, and they really don't know. But then when you go to villages and talk about democracy, uh, well, the villagers look at you that, uh, is it some type of food that I can eat? Because they're hungry. I mean, they're not really, what's democracy? You have to sit yeah. down and explain to them what it is. And they say, no, thank you. Yeah. It's, it's interesting you say that. Even the media currently in Pakistan, uh, it's a spectacle to behold. If you look at liberal media, the way that the Taliban have come to power, they've lost the marbles. They're, they're saying, um, I don't know. We don't know what Taliban will do. We don't know about their capability. We just don't know what's going on. You know, they've lost their marbles completely because um, it's, it's not worked out in the way that the liberal project would have liked for it to work out. Absolutely. I worked in journalism for 19 years in the heart of news. Yeah. I've worked with many news organizations and some of them even for Channel 9 Australia with 60 Minutes. Most, not most, all, or I could say 99.9% of the journalists are liberal-minded. Yeah. And, and the job of journalism is to mediate reality. But when they mediate the reality, they do it in the, in, in the image of liberalism. Yes. So therefore, what, what they produce is a skewed, it is, it is incorrect. Of it's the reality. got their ideological tinge on it. It has an ideological tint. It, there's selectivity in news. And with that selectivity, what happens is that they give the wrong image. Policymakers 
thinking that this is, or not thinking, believing that what's there is true reality of that, of that country, they enact policies on that. Those policies fail, then they wonder why everything failed. Mm. It's because your very initial glasses, the lens through which you look at the country was liberalism. Yeah. And, and, and that's why uh, they're baffled in a sense that why? Because the liberals believe that their ideology is a natural state of human being. So therefore, they don't, they don't need. They don't even need to explain why you have or to justify. They don't. Yeah, they don't need to justify, justify it. They push it as given. Uh, there's a givenness to it. This is how reality is. You are on the periphery. We are in the center. But that's not the reality in Afghanistan. The reality in Afghanistan is that Islam is in the center, and the reality and yep. in Afghanistan is that Islam is in the center. Um, so it, it is very interesting to see uh, how this is going to play out in the long run. But very quick capping. There are many layers of war in the region. Is Afghanistan going to be built in the image of Tajiks, or is it going to be built in the image of Pashtuns, or is it going to be a multi-ethnic polar nation, multi-ethnic polar, not, not a single ethnic polar? Then is it going to be Hanafi, or is it going to be Salafi? Is it going to be Shia, or is it going to be Sunni? Is it going to be pro-India, or is it going to be pro-Pakistan? What's its relationship with, uh, with, with, with uh, former Russian states? And what's its relationship with the Arab world? And then at a higher level, is it going to be in the left of the world's politics or in the right of the world's politics? Or is it going to have carve its own space as an independent ideology or thinking of Islam? These are all layers of conflict that makes this conflict extremely dynamic, perplexing, and uh, to some people confusing. That's why political parties love to s s simplify everything between yeah, Islam yeah. and Kufr, uh, Muslim, non-Muslim, good and bad, a terrorist, not terrorist, you're with us, you're with, uh, against us. Mm -hmm. And that has failed. That simplification of the conflict has failed. Yeah. Hashmat, if I can get, uh, then I'll get your thoughts on it in a second, but I was interested in asking, uh, in asking Hashmat, you talk about the image in which um, uh, Taliban will sort of re-enliven itself, bring itself back to life? Which image will it be? What will it look like? I think one of the, you know, to address the immediate concerns of the podcast as well, one of those immediate um, concerns is if we, if we say what we've said about Pakistan and we've spoken about its top brass, we're talking about the rest of the military and the public and so forth. Um, we said in the promotional video for this, uh, and, and that's the reality of it, that, that, that um, Pakistan has not been able to frame a policy independent of American directives for the last four decades or so, barring one or two completely negligible anomalies to that. It's been uh, in American quarters through and through. My question is, given that that's the case of the top brass of Pakistan, given their significance, which we've um, admitted is, 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 is um, to be reckoned with, how can the Taliban escape Pakistan's mm. grip if it wants to imagine itself in any which way, hopefully in an Islamic way? But how can it actually escape Pakistan's grip in your in your? I view? think, in, in my opinion, um, uh, Taliban can escape Pakistan's grip by playing the same double game or playing the multiple game. Uh, they have a very strong and satisfied Tajik population. If they can tap into that sentiment and not destroy it completely and use it for its foreign policy advantage and use the Hazara in their foreign policy towards Iran and Pakistan and, and then move towards in its foreign policy economically, again, 
from Pakistan border to the northern border of uh, Afghanistan, which is with the Soviet, former Soviet state, yeah. Tajikistan, Afghanistan, there's not, not much for Pakistan. Pakistan has to look beyond that. To look beyond that, that gives the Taliban advantage. So, and again, um, I think the Taliban are also going to use uh, the, the existence of the Islamic State or Daesh to their advantage in the same way that Pakistan used those, uh, the uh, Lashkar Taiba and others in its foreign, as, as a factor in its foreign policy. You see, when a child is weak, what is his biggest asset? Crying, annoying the mother until it gets what it wants. Weakness sometimes is, 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 is also a, a power, is, is a benefit to you. So to, to say that, look, I'm a nation just rising, I am weak, I cannot control everybody, I need room to play, at the same time allow those forces inside the country to shape its foreign, its, the dynamics of the society, it's going to give the Taliban room to play with Pakistan. But I don't think in any near future the Taliban are in a position or willing to so quickly win themselves off Pakistan. Oh. Uh, remember, as we said in the beginning, uh, the West is going to, to satisfy its population. The West is going to use sanctions, economic pressure on the Taliban, and Taliban know that. Taliban right now desperately need cash. Okay, you've got the government. Yes, you're in power. What next? This what next is the most fundamental question that the Taliban have to come with an answer. Now, Pakistan not, is not in a position to financially support the Taliban. Pakistan is in a position to mediate financial solutions for the Taliban. Oh. And that's where Qatar comes in. You see, we, we, we've talked about Pakistan, but now Qatar is the only country that fully, other than Pakistan, supported the Taliban and uh, Saudis are not happy about Qatari success. I mean, this is a huge success for Qatari diplomacy, mm. in a sense, especially in the eyes of the many uh, uh, Muslims as well, who are, who are looking things through the prism of just the emotion of religion, uh, not the deep politics of religion. I think Turkey uh, has spoken about diplomatic ties. Yeah, yeah Turkey as well. Turkey has spoken, uh, Germany uh, uh, visited, uh, officials visited Pakistan, so same as UK. Italy is next to come and through Pakistan uh, mediate a relationship with, with uh, Taliban. Taliban do want relationship with America, Europe, the whole world. Taliban wants the entire package, but that package is going to come through Pakistan. And until certain things are not, ink is not put to paper in the relationship between Pakistan and Taliban, uh, Taliban Pakistan is going to hold those leashes. Uh, remember, we said Taliban, Afghans by nature, whether they are Tajiks, Pashtun, Uzbek, Hazara, this region by nature throughout history has developed a, a core independence to themselves. Mm. Yes, alliances are made. You see, weapons didn't grow in our mountains. We didn't have weapons in our, on trees growing. Afghan, people say, just before we said, America supported and funded Afghanistan's war. Saudi Arabia supported Afghanistan's war against the Soviets. So if you look at it, the people of Afghanistan, with empty hands, used American weapons, used the world's weapons to carve up a space for themselves. Who used who at the end of the day? You know, when you come with no money into the market and then you turn up to become a, uh, end up becoming a shareholder in the market, means that doesn't matter who financed you, you played that politics to be, to be sitting at the table. So, and, and that independence, uh, is going to be 
the fact that it's going to do undo the Taliban internally. Jazakallah khair, Adnan. Sorry, you've been very patient. I do have a very, uh, uh, I do have something to pick your brain on that I've been meaning to ask as well. Um, the region seems, based on the rhetoric of the um, Central Asian Summit of, of last month or the month before, seems to be moving away from the geo-security geo concerns to these geo-economic concerns of connectivity with Central Asia and so forth. How will, um, do you think Pakistan involve or, or whether Pakistan involves them or not, how do you think the Taliban as the representative leadership of Afghanistan will be a part of that picture? And of course, the question of Pakistan sort of involving them within, within that picture of connectivity, is there a real chance for, for Afghanistan to rely on its own rice fields, to rely on its own crops, to build that economy, to be a part of that picture of connectivity uh, and to grow on that basis, do you think? Mm. So interestingly, this talk of connectivity all started once the peace deal was agreed between the US uh, and the Taliban. Uh, and since then, uh, the Pakistani establishment has held lots of conferences and they're really excited yeah. uh, about connectivity. So it all starts once the peace deal was done. So we're talking about Central Asia, we're talking about uh, Afghanistan, we're talking about uh, Pakistan. And some of this goes back to the 90s of, you know, the whole pipelines from Central Asia they go through Afghanistan, Pakistan, onto the uh, uh, the ocean. So this is what the Pakistani establishment have now been selling, that connectivity, let's move away from security to geo-economics. Yep. Uh, and obviously, because of the state of Pakistan's economy, that's an easy sell to the people. And now that the Taliban have come in power, it's a, it's a double success mm. uh, for Pakistan. You've got a friendly government, you've kicked India out. That's how they're actually selling it, yeah? I think with connectivity, we're just going to be careful because... This is the same thing they used to talk about Turkey, you know, in between oil producers, oil consumers. The thing is, if you're just a roundabout where other countries go through, you're not going to make much money. What are you selling or what are you buying? Right. So if you're just going to collect taxes and tariffs from oil that's going to go through you, that's not going to really help develop your country. It's been about five to eight years now of the corridor they've got with China. And there's been some fixing of roles, there's been some development, but it's not had a knock-on effect on the Pakistan economy. So, you know, that route can just that become... The, the BRI project you're talking about there? Yeah, uh, so they call it CPEC, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. And oh. we've had a number of these projects globally where the countries that are the uh, road route, they don't really, do, unless you're exporting or importing, you're physically buying or selling, you're just a, a, a route. So Pakistan is going to be careful here that, you know, we, we've seen other countries have not actually benefited. But the Pakistani establishment are really excited about uh, connectivity. And it's interestingly, the neocon dream in America has been they want to collect Central Asia to South Asia rather than the Russians get their hands on it. Mm. So remember, for long, Central Asia was behind the Iron Curtain. In 1991, all that, you know, I think Dick Cheney, I remember calling it the next Middle East uh, Central Asia. The problem was throughout the 90s, you didn't have a, you had a civil war gang in Afghanistan. So when the Taliban took over in the nine, 1996, I think it was, uh, the Americas effectively accepted it. But you've got one regime, now you can build the pipelines. But the Taliban, you know, they dragged their feet, they started talking to other um, uh, potential investors. Interestingly, regime change in Afghanistan was on the cards from the late 1990s. 9-11 became the pretext uh, in the end. Yeah. So this connectivity, there's a lot of excitement. Um, however, there's been a number of projects historically that have been proposed that have never seen the light of the day. No. So the thing here is, you're right, from Afghanistan's perspective, you're going to have to import export to some degree. Uh, 
to Afghanistan's landlocked. Interestingly, Afghanistan surrounded by important countries, important regions, and that's why Afghanistan historically has been important. You, you know, your Central Asia is right there, South Asia is right there, the Middle East is next door. That's why everybody always wants to get their hands on Afghanistan. It, it is a strategic piece of real estate. Uh, mm. If you could call it that. And that's why, you know, you know, for the last 40 years, effectively, the Afghans have been at war. It was the Soviets. Uh, it, it was the, the, the Americans. So there is economic uh, uh, potential. Uh, the interesting thing here is there's an added factor that wasn't there before, which is China. Okay. And Central Asia is key for China's boat and road initiative. This uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Central Asia connectivity, it goes counter to China's project. And you can see the, you know, the, the future competition is starting to take shape now. In, in effect, what Pakistan seems to be saying is despite our relationship with China, we're more excited and interested in this North to South connectivity project. And Central Asia is key really for China. That BRA project, Central Asia is absolutely uh, key. So you can see where this is going. Uh, you know, you've got, you got two opposing projects, two opposing visions really uh, of that region. And I think, you know, whoever rules in Afghanistan, Pakistan, what side are you going to be on? Are you going to join one of the global players or are you actually going to take care of your own interests uh, and actually do things which will benefit you uh, going forward? If that is the case, then there's needs to Pakistan and Afghanistan need to work together rather than, you know, America throws a project out, Pakistan jumps on board and it gets really uh, excited. All I would say with these big projects, we've been here before. A number of these have been proposed and they've not materialized. Uh, and in fact, we saw after the Soviets departed, America effectively looked the other way. Yeah, so, yeah, there, there's economic so. potential. Uh, I think, you know, the, the Taliban's major challenge now is what you can do. You're in government now. You, you've done the hard mm. bit. Now you've got to run the country. And uh, you now you've got to do the harder um, bit. I think the <laughs> Taliban, uh, they, they went to the central bank and they had to be told that the physical cash doesn't exist. Yes. They went there asking, where's the 10 billion in reserve? Yeah. And they had to be informed, no, the reserves are actually the form of bonds and debt sitting in America. So I don't know. How, I mean, they could, they could potentially introduce their own currency. So these are the things they're going to really have to get their teeth into now. Because, you know, it took, if I remember, Mohammed Mursi, it took one year for everyone to work out. These guys can't run the economy. You're not mm -hmm. going to get long. Uh, you're in power now. You've shown the Afghan people you rule the country. You've more or less defeated all the opposition. So now you have to rule. So, you know, economics, security, you've got the social areas. They're going to really have to go. I mean, what's interesting this time around, I felt with the Taliban, they were quite isolationist previously. They're throwing out everything. They speak to the Chinese, the, the Russians, yeah. uh, the Americans. Yeah, spokespeople are very available, commenting everywhere. Anyone can get in touch, yeah. having the press conferences. I mean, they're doing press conferences yeah. now. Would it be interesting if they had a woman doing a press conference, but that's another <laughs> discussion in itself. But no, it, it's, it's been interesting. I mean, it's been quite um, different this time around. However, you know, at some point, you know, the rhetoric has to give way to reality. I mean, I think just the other day they said China is going to be the principal partner. And that's probably more rhetoric than reality. But at some point, you're going to have to start delivering. Um, this but is not like the Western world where you have goodwill for about three months, 100 days. Um, so they've got significant challenges coming up. And this is where, you know, your relationships, uh, your, your political plan. I mean, just the delay in announcing the government is not a good sign. <laughs> uh, we'll have to see how it plays out. Hashmat, I think, has been, uh, has been waiting to comment on something. So let's hear it. Yep. Yeah, that's good. Um, I'm going to say a slightly different uh, take on this uh, with a China-Taliban relationship and the economic issue. 
according to World Bank, 60% of Afghanistan's economy is rural dependent and subsistent farming. The economy in the cities was basically a consumer economy based on occupation and military bases and basically jobs from the government. I think Taliban are going to create a much smaller government, not too big a government. And they're going to have an austerity plan. And I think that with the experience of China, with national projects and developing the uh, agriculture sector, now that Taliban inherited something bigger than money, the, 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 some of the water dams that they've got, the dams that they've got throughout Afghanistan, about two or three of them that have been built, that is going to, or has the ability to produce enormous amount of, uh, or let's say a good amount of uh, agricultural produce. With the Chinese exper expertise in that field, and Afghanistan traditionally being an agricultural society, Taliban can manage through a very wide communistic, like the, the, like the time of the Soviets or, or uh, Chinese, mm. national projects of producing food, they can keep majority of the population happy and move to that direction. Yep. I think that's something Pakistan would like to have. They do not want Afghanistan to become industrialized. Industrialization of Afghanistan, the neighboring countries see that as dangerous. Because remember, in the psyche of the Afghans, they were an empire once. Uh, Afghanistan feels like the Germany of Central Asia before the First World and Second World War. And there will come a time when this country will, will bounce back. Yes, Afghanistan is seen as a real estate, but it's not a real estate for grab, you know, by anybody. Oh. It's a real estate with owners. Absolutely. And those owners are going to one day uh, uh, unify around a, a, a common uh, uh, view of themselves and, and solve their problems and probably create problems for the neighbors. And that's why a lot of neighbors do not want Afghanistan to be industrialized. I believe that it's going to move more towards, yes, it's going to move towards China. China will, does not want Afghanistan to, to, to fail. And that dovetails into how the Taliban can break away from Pakistan is through heavily relying in the initial stages to, towards uh, China. Yeah. And but there have been statements and sentiments Absolutely. linking that, that as well. Yeah. In fact, one of the embassies in, sorry, one of the embassies in Kabul is a Chinese that is still operating. Sorry, go ahead. Absolutely. absolutely. But that's going to dent the image of the Taliban as an Islamic movement that is fighting for the sake of Islam and Muslims, with the Igor Muslims of China being persecuted. That's the hard sell, uh, sell that the Taliban have to do to the, to the majority of the Muslims around the world who are basically supporting the Taliban or have sentiments towards the Taliban. So being in government has brought a lot of challenges to the Taliban. Yep. And sooner or later, they have to move from slogan to hard, at times double, and at times dirty politics. Uh, yeah, this is the future for the Taliban, and let's see how, how they're going to play that. But the most important thing is, of course, to keep the house in order. That is to bring the Tajiks, to bring the Uzbeks and the Hazaras together. About the gas pipeline, I just want to make that last comment. When the oil gas pipeline was proposed to be built from Turkmenistan through to Pakistan, from, yeah, Ahmad Shamasud back then said, without us, that pipeline is going to be a holy pipeline. We're going to blow it up here now and then. That's quite possible. These projects can still be sabotaged by forces inside Afghanistan. You see, 
The Americans came, displaced the Taliban. They did not defeat the Taliban. The defeat was not ideological. It was just they took ground. The Taliban now defeated Panjshir Valley, let's say the Northern Alliance or the Tajiks predominantly. But that defeat is a geographical defeat, military defeat. It is not an ideological defeat. It's not a defeat of claim. They are going to continue uh, with a huge expat population outside, uh, some of them very vengeful. Uh, any future government must somehow reach a compromise and be inclusive for Afghanistan to move forward. And I think Pakistan realizes that. Thank you very much. I, I want to put a, uh, I don't know if I want to say, I don't want to say final. I always hate saying final because that, that's very exclusive to Hamza. I think Hamza might want to add some <laughs> thoughts to this. But penultimate question to both of you. Um, um, my question is this. I know I was speaking earlier about, um, you know, breaking away from Pakistan's tight grip. But at the end of the day, um, it's that double game. Like you don't want to break away. You want to break away from the top brass and you don't want to break away from connectivity and connecting with Pakistan, right, in the long run. My question is this. Um, a player in the geopolitical framework in the world is as strong as they think of themselves, right? Um, you know, if Afghanistan and the Taliban as the representative leadership of Afghanistan comes out and continues some of the language, which I'm a little bit critical of, uh, you know, um, some of the language around being seeking recognition from the international community um, and appeasing them regarding the treatment of women and so forth. Um, I think it's, it's about positioning. Like if Afghanistan comes out, do you feel that there is, there is um, an important step that Afghanistan needs to take in dictating how it would like to be positioned? You know, in, in saying it's, it doesn't need to wait for Pakistan to talk about connectivity. It doesn't need, need wait for Central Asia to say you're part of the picture. It can come out itself and say that we have a long-term vision of connectivity with Central Asia, with Pakistan, and have the kind of um, not just language, but literally the way that the Central Asian leaders and Pakistan's Imran Khan walks into the summit. Taliban should walk into the um, summit when it's next invited and say, you know, that uh, these are our uh, future goals of connectivity. We do see a future with Central Asia. You know, if cooperation exists, we do see a future with Pakistan. Do you feel that that language and that vision towards connectivity should come forth from the Taliban itself, uh, Adnan? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, unfortunately, that's what's really been uh, missing. Obviously, it's only been what, a couple of weeks. There's only so much the Taliban can do physically. What you can do is intellectually put out your positions, yeah? I think we're just going to be, obviously, we've got to take into account, you know, the Taliban have been at war for the best part of 40 years. You know, they, their vision for the moment is domestic inside Afghanistan. And that's understandable. You know, they've been at war. They defeated two empires. You can uh, lay claim uh, to that. But, you know, there needs to be some red lines. There's got to be some fixed principles which people can judge them by and which they will proceed by. Yeah. So, for example, they've got a lot of goodwill inside Pakistan from the people. They should be reaching out to the people. Absolutely. In fact, where the regime or the establishment play the double game, they should just be in Pakistan. They've got a lot of goodwill. You know, for a long time, as far as people in Pakistan were concerned, that bull does not bear. These are our people. And in fact, a lot of money was raised inside Pakistan. That's what they need to do. Obviously, look, we've got to be practical here, which is look, the Taliban are not a group like that. And if you just look at their history, you know, they're a resistant guerrilla movement fighting against empires. And that's what they've been doing. Now, obviously, they need to transition. 
Yeah, they need to transition from being a guerrilla movement to a political player. So they've got their domestic audience, which Hashem's mentioned a lot about. They're going to have to deal with that. You know, it'd be interesting if they were to actually give some of the positions to their opposition, how would that deal with the unity inside the country? Then, at the moment, internationally, they just need to put out their positions. Obviously, for that, they need to understand the international system, the players, and how you get around that. I mean, interestingly, there's been a lot of talk in the West that the Taliban are going to start targeting the opposition. Uh, they're going to start uh, carrying out assassinations. This is coming from the side of the world that set up Guantanamo Bay that went after all the uh, individuals that they've removed. So there's a lot of, so they can play the ideological game by exposing the West and their values. What do they stand for? In the West, they've got question marks about their values. You know, uh, uh, the, 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 the wealth divide, democracy is, you know, rock bottom at the moment. But obviously Taliban don't have this vision. <laughs> the, Taliban, the fact that they're calling someone emirate and not a caliphate is that. A caliphate has a global vision. He's looking to expand intellectually, physically in the long run. That's not the Taliban goals. And that's not because they're insincere. That's because look at where they've come from. They've come from madrasas and they've been at war for 40 years. You know, for them, this is the culmination of a long uh, struggle. However, they've got the goodwill, not just across the border, across the Muslim world. They should be reaching out uh, to the Muslim world. And everyone gets it at the moment. You know, physically, they can't do much. Uh, they've got to sort out the domestic situation. But intellectually, they can be putting out uh, actually a lot. What's your long-term view on America and the system America stands for? That system's crumbling. In fact, the Taliban, Afghanistan's had the more smoother transfer in government than america had uh, uh, recently yeah. so they, a lot of this stuff they can do but the reason why they don't do it, it's not because it is a lot of it they don't know these sort of I'm, I'm just saying honestly I, I don't speak on behalf of pakistan i barely speak on behalf of mount druitt which is where i live <laughs> but <laughs> but uh Hashma, the reason i say it is because we've got a public in pakistan um which craves for that kind of, uh, wherever the, that form of sincere Islamic leadership rises, and now it's in their backyard, they crave for that kind of commentary and intellectual leadership that America should sit quietly while we run the show in Afghanistan now. Yeah. The, the Taliban is not your traditional uh, political party uh, that, was, that came into the Muslim world as a culture from Europe. Taliban is more of a spiritual, tribal, loose movement of various factions. Sure. You see, within the Taliban, a group that is close to Haqqani with much more Salafi movement ideas. Yeah, yeah. Then recently we saw videos of some Taliban or some pro-Taliban mullahs are saying that this government is going to uproot the Salafis out of Afghanistan. In fact, uh, a very prominent uh, Salafi scholar just yesterday him and his brother, uh, Obaidullah Mutawakkil, who was in prison during the time of uh, Ghani, was taken by neighbors saying Taliban, uh, people dressed like Taliban, or less, the people said they are Taliban who came and took them. A few days later, they were found beheaded and their bodies have been destroyed with acid. This is a very prominent uh, Salafi scholar. So, again, the Taliban have something inside to sort out. Are they going to be a Sufi movement, a Salafi movement, or Diobandi movement, Hanafi movement? What are they going to be the top of Islam that the rest of the Muslim world has come to aspire that is an inclusive Islam of all uh, madhahib, all the schools of thoughts and ideas? 
but under a single leadership that draws inspiration from Islam, not from uh, Western, Westernism or liberalism, not from the right of Western thoughts, not from the left of Western thoughts, not from modernity. People are looking for a theory of social order that is extracted from the values of Islam. Do the Taliban have the intellectual capacity, the scholars to do that? I personally doubt that. I personally doubt that. We have not seen anything like that from the Taliban. Uh, at the local level, yes, I have seen a number of uh, Taliban, again, I say this reservedly, please don't read into it too much, I have seen a number of Taliban who are Tajik ethnic group or Uzbek and I speak Persian. They've articulated in their interviews and in their ideas a very fascinating view of society and how they want to move forward. But among the core of the Taliban uh, movement, we have not seen an, 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 an intellectual uh, theory of social order based on Islam. So it is expected from a tribal movement that, as we said, has been in war at least for the last 20 years or, or 30 years, if you said from 94 or whichever way you take the date the Taliban were created. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that there are, uh, there are a lot of gaps in the Taliban's theory of governance. Okay. But what works in their favor, the fact that they have not called a republic or they have not called a Westminster system of government yeah, that can yeah. be judged by the Western philosophers of, of politics and, and the social theories and governments, they're calling it Khilafah. Sorry, they're calling it uh, uh, Emirate of Taliban, uh, Emirat of Taliban, and they're going to invent it as they go. And you cannot hold them uh, to task, oh, this system is not working because everything is new. As, as they move forward, they invent the post and they're going to create a dichotomy between this spiritual leader, which is Hebatullah, and then, or Haybatullah, and the governance itself. That dichotomy is interesting to see how it's going to play out. Mm -hmm. Some people said it's going to be more like the Iranian spiritual leader of the Walayat uh, al-Faqih and the government. But as you know, the Taliban and Afghanistan predominantly Sunni, Walayat al-Faqih in the psyche and the theory of, mm -hmm. uh, of governance in the mind of the Shia has religious authority that cannot be challenged. But in the Sunni political thought, uh, the Khalifa, the Amir al-Mu'mineen, everyone can be challenged by the scholars. You don't have to use them as your marja'i taqlid or the, or the point of reference that you have to follow, that, you, that you're religiously obliged to follow. That doesn't exist within the Taliban. Um, yeah, I, I leave it at that. I think there's a yeah. lot of questions than answers in this. Very, thing. very interesting insight. Um, Sufyan did say that uh, it was the penultimate. Oh, look, I don't have a question because what you guys said covered what I was going to ask, which was, is there room for some kind of genuine Islamic project? And I think both of you guys, mashallah, have articulated your positions uh, quite strongly on that. So I think that's a, a great point to leave it at. But I guess my one contribution to that is, you know, it, it signals perhaps a need for the Taliban as well as the other sincere Islamic groups and movements, you know, the goodwill that's been established around the world to have some kind of dialogue, perhaps some kind of interaction where, you know, as Brother Hashmat said, if the Taliban perhaps aren't looking in that direction, maybe others can point that way. And Allahu Allah, maybe in the long term, there's something that can come out of the emirate to the caliphate, whatever it might be. Um, and as Muslims, we've all got a vested interest in seeing uh, genuine and sincere Islamic leadership. And inshallah, if there's 
some good to come out of this movement with the Taliban and everything that's happening, then so be it. And Allah is the, uh, the best of planners. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, I think we've, uh, we've gone well over our time, but that's all right. Alhamdulillah. We had a, a fantastic discussion. I'm Ashman, sure that this our... is proof that we all enjoyed this. Yeah, we, we certainly did. We, uh, we very much enjoyed it. Alhamdulillah. Um, but uh, I think we've uh, we've taken every shred of patience now from our viewers and listeners. So Jazakallah Khair for those who have uh, battled on through this entire journey. Um, Jazakallah Khair. It has been a fantastic discussion. Um, and I'd like to, with the greatest sincerity, thank both of our guests, uh, Brother Adnan and Brother Hashmat, for your appearances. I know you're in different time zones and I don't know what strange hour of the night you might have had to get up to do this. But Jazakallah Khair. Thank you very, very much. It's been fantastic to have you guys on. Um, and uh, we really, really thank you. Thank you so much. I also wanted to personally thank them as well. I think one of our guests uh, actually um, moved his, his changed his flight to, to be able to make this podcast. And the other one's been so extremely uh, flexible with his schedule. Um, mashallah, I really, really appreciate the, the, the flexibility that you guys have shown. All I had to do was go upstairs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alhamdulillah. Um, so inshallah, our viewers, uh, we hope that you enjoyed uh, the conversation and learned a lot as we did. Um, we are obviously on uh, Facebook, on Instagram. We hope that you can click uh, like and share and uh, share these uh, kinds of videos with uh, your friends and your contacts if you find them useful, as we pray you do. We will end it on that note, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.